Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diane. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling spontaneous. Ooh. And I'm also meaning that in the terms of improvisation. I love improv. And on a personal note, improvisation has been something that has got me through life. I (laughs) have often loved being spontaneous because for me, I've always hated, ever since childhood, plans and rules and structures, even though I know having structures and frameworks works can help bring about new ideas and creativity and positive energy but I've always struggled with it and from a young age I was into performing arts and actually so much so that by the time I was in secondary school a teacher of mine was like we're going to do this thing called public speaking and we're going to get you to do improv where they would give me like a sentence or something like you're walking the dog and then you have to stand up in front of everyone for like five minutes and talk about it and only researching this episode did I think about the reason we're even doing talk art is partly it's all been quite spontaneous improvisational just sort of running on our feet not really knowing what we were doing we were never meant to be broadcasters it just kind of happened but that all happened for me anyway the way that I could do that was because of all my teachers from growing up Mm. and sometimes you forget how important those people are who kind of all along the way from the age of five you know the age of 10 like these different teachers drama teachers that have literally shaped my life and helped me to thrive and and flourish and today's guest's work it didn't start out this way, but in more recent times has been looking a lot at spontaneity, at improvisation, uh, including all different kinds of voices and highlighting different opinions, And but essentially for a positive kind of outcome. And her work is currently on display at the Venice Biennale, mm-hmm. and she just won the Golden Lion, which we'll discuss later on, which is a major accolade for those who don't know anything about the art world. It's pretty much the highest award you can receive, and very deservedly so. And Her work began more with kind of drawings and figurative work, and it's led into a practice that includes so many different types of media. It's just going to be the most exciting episode Mm. to discuss, um, from photography, performance, sound, all different kinds of installations, and also a keen passion for wallpaper and textiles and uh, patterns, which, as you know, anyone listening knows, I I love as well. Mm. So we would love to welcome to Talk Art... Sonia Boyce. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hi, Sonia. Hello. I can't believe we're doing this. I'm such a big fan. Oh, well, first off, you, when Rob mentioned the Golden Lion, then you sort of shook your head and, and looked down bashfully. But yes. congratulations. Oh, Everyone is so proud. It is so brilliant. And have you come down from cloud nine yet? And what, what is it like? Um, Have I come... 
I have moments of kind of being back, you know, on the ground, and then and then I kind of think, God, what happened there? I don't understand what happened. But yeah, I, yeah, part of me is still up there in the clouds, and part of me is getting on with day to day life. So, yeah, it's what was it like? Ah, uh, I I can't even quite describe the shock of of uh, of being even shortlisted. And that was in 2020 you found out about being... Well, it was actually 2029, the end of... In December 2029. No, 2019, sorry. <laughs> oh, I was wow. going to look towards the future. I was looking, like, where looking, we gone? Looking to the future. <laughs> You're going to do it again? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it again. Of course. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. well, it's the second round. No, um, 2019, it was in December 2019 that I got a phone call um, from Emma Dexter, who is the Director of Visual Arts at the British Council. And I've known, I've known uh, Emma for 30 odd years I know when she was a, a young curator in Stoke-on-Trent and um, they don't actually tell you that they are you know considering you for the the, the the British Pavilion they do it you know they they invite you know kind of once peers I suppose curators and people who you know talk and think about art uh and and then like they let you know like a jury they have a jury and i didn't know that i was being looked at and so she calls me and and says well you know you may need to sit down because we would like to commission you to be the artist for the british pavilion and i cried for an hour oh. i cried so much my daughter one of my eldest daughter came running thinking that somebody had died or something. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't understand what's going on. And then I woke up my partner. He was asleep and I woke up my partner and, and he said, oh, that's very nice. And then went back to sleep, which was very funny. Um, but yeah, it was a complete shock to be invited in the first place. Do you think anyone's ever turned it down? Because people turn down knighthoods and they turn down like award nominations. Is this something that I think artists politically might have turned down over the years? If they have, then no one's told me. Right. Um, because it is, you know, one, you know, just as most artists will say, the opportunity to show to showcase one's work is always like that's what you're about. That's what, <laughs> that's what one does. Yeah. Someone says you've got to, you know, would you like to have a show? And you kind of say yes, please. And I'll chew off my arm actually to be able to. So I, I don't know whether any artists have refused. Lots of artists I know would really, you know would do anything to be push you over to take yeah literally (laughs) literally and that's fine and actually I heard I read the New York Times article which was really interesting and it it said that when you were looking out after um you know it opened at the Biennale you were you saw in the crowd loads of artists that you knew and maybe some you didn't know as well but you, you it sort of made you think why haven't those artists that I respect and admire so greatly not had the opportunity yet yeah. and the New York Times article actually used, used the word circumspection I think like circumspect um and so obviously one side of you is really happy and grateful and over the moon about uh the opportunity and the award uh, for the Golden Lion but also there's this element of like it's highlighting something that's been missing absolutely Absolutely. I mean, 2022 and, you know, to be the first black British female artist to be to be invited yeah. seems really it's like, well, why is it taking that long? And there are there are there are just so many really brilliant um, artists that are out there. And that it was it was a very um, moving moment uh, standing on the steps of the pavilion and looking at one. I kind of, I think for the last two and a half years, I've been kind of pushing to the back of my head uh, this whole question of the kind of weight of history and just seeing so many people and so many artists, I just kind of thought, well, 
no, why haven't you been invited? Mm. Um, just became really overwhelming at that moment. Just well, like a sort of guilt or a sort of... No, it wasn't guilt. It was more... Oh, literally just well you're brilliant why haven't you not been invited you know and i guess the more people you see that you think that about it must become quite overwhelming as a feeling yeah because you're sort of like what's going on here what's going on here but also that sense of because i i'd also been kind of resisting the a lot of the discussions about the first black british female yeah, yeah, artists yeah and feeling oh you know what that question means is that i'm there to represent somehow a kind of huge number of people mm. yeah so much pressure yeah, yeah. yeah. And, totally unfair. Yeah. and thinking well you know although that is it's a kind of double-edged accolade in that you know to say okay you're the first means actually no one was expecting us you know mm. there's it, there wasn't a place somehow for us and mm. suddenly there is and just thinking kind of feet sensing oh my goodness this is this is actually quite huge that mm. I'm doing this and that I you know I've been kind of resisting this question about being a kind of representative of a you know diverse range of artists actually mm. but yeah and it was that moment of just kind of like it just all came rushing by seeing huge crowd of people and thinking yeah, this is a real big deal. I think I'd, up until then I'd been um, doing really practical things and making lists and kind of keeping everything really pragmatic about the things I needed to do to get the work done mm. and and trying to resist thinking about oh, what this means in a much, on a much bigger kind of scale. And actually the installation in Venice, you would need a list to organise because there are so many elements to it that make up a greater whole, um, including like sculpture and um, like a wall installation of actual like wallpaper, uh, wallpaper and then um, video elements. But you had to like make the films yeah. with these different singers. And um, how did you begin the whole process of creating that exhibition? Did did you know instantly when you got the, the, told you was going to be doing the show? Did you know? Oh, this is the exhibition I sort of want. No, my my original thoughts was that because because a, a lot of what I've been doing has involved so many people being involved and participating or contributing in in a variety of ways, I had thought about doing a um, an installation where the audience would basically play play the building as if it was an instrument. And my idea was to get everybody who came through the door to kind of feel that they could, you know, they could touch something, they could bang something, they could, that they could really get involved. And then COVID came along, you know, and the pandemic happened. And so I had to really rethink what I was going to do. Because you can't touch anything. Because you can't be touching things in that way or people being so close to mm. each other that they might somehow, you know, you know, Within the media, I know during during all the various lockdowns, there were yeah. very strict guidelines about you know how close people can yeah. be together, and lots of museums ha- had a kind of um, choreography through museum spaces so, so that audiences can kind of see could go backwards. Could, could you? Yeah. yeah. So you literally having to think about how you choreograph people so that they are that there's enough distance mm. for them to enjoy, and so I I kind of then thought well. I should really, rather than do this really kind of crazy idea, I should really return to a project that's been ongoing for a very, very long time, uh, which is a devotional project. And I thought, okay, let's start there. Um, because, you know, that's material that I've just gathered for over 20-odd years. Mm. So the devotional project or the devotional collections, it's sometimes... It's a collection and it's a project and it's there are a series of things that come out of it. Yeah. 
And you're a music geek, right? You're an absolute music well, fan. Or... I, 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 I wouldn't say that. Or an addict? I'd be, I've become, I've become right. more of a geek than I was. Um, and it's actually through that project, which really got lots of people who've given me information about performers that I may or may not know. And then I go and do some research. So um, Andy, someone would have just said, oh, do you know of Andy Oliver? And and then I'd go and research who this person was and think, oh, gosh, yeah, I used to dance to Rip Rick and Panic. I mean, they're really very kind of fast-paced. Uh, not disco, I mean, really kind of um, energetic post-punk music. And it's through other people that I've learned about musicians historically um, that have kind of really made massive contribution to music in, in this country. So I do have a large-ish collection uh, a lot of vinyl, a lot of CDs, um, cassettes, um, memorabilia pe that people have just sent me. So my my knowledge is not that I've just gone out and found all these um, performers. People literally send me information and then I do some research. It's been a very shared experience, hasn't it? Like a lot of contribution from so many different places. Can you go all the way back to when this project began? Because I love the story of it. It's the most fascinating idea. So often with your work, you will almost make like a proposition or a question to an audience and then ask them to respond. And out of their responses, so much is revealed, um, like with this project. Yeah, well, so so the devotional project, it was called The Mother Load to begin with. And um, FACT, which is the Foundation for Art and Creativity in Liverpool, before they actually had a building, they, were, um, they did a lot of kind of... Um, a programme where they would invite artists to collaborate and co-produce an artwork with a particular constituency in Liverpool. Liverpool has a really, really good and long history of what's called kind of social engagement through mm. the arts. Mm. And so they invited me to, um, they kind of partnered me with Liverpool Black Sisters and they asked me to put, you know, put together a proposal and I thought, well, actually what I would really like to do is to ask them, you know, what, Black female singers have they grown up with, you know, and and that was how you no know, the first workshop was me asking the group, um, yeah, can you name can you name a black British female singer, and you know I was expecting us to kind of just start straight away and kind of then get everyone to do their own bits of research about the performers that they they loved or they'd grown up with, and it took it took about ten very awkward minutes of of the, the the group kind of thinking, oh, I can't think of anyone. And it, I mean, it was really excruciating that no one could think of a name. The only names they could think of were usually African-American uh, female singers, mm. but they couldn't think of anyone British. Mm. And I think what, what resulted from that was that, and I think because they were quite embarrassed by the time we had remembered, and the first person that was remembered was Shirley Bassey. Yeah. At which point we all stood up and sang Big Spender, as you had to. You know, which it's we're going to do right now. Well, I'm quite happy to do that. Um, um, but yeah, I think they kind of went away trying to figure out why couldn't we? Th why could we not remember any any names? Because you know, they, they they all enjoyed music, and of course in Liverpool, I mean, Liverpool is a city of music. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Uh, and so what then happened, this was meant to be a kind of six-month project, 
And they then, unintentionally, this wasn't really a plan of the project, they then went and asked friends and family members and people that they worked with. And it became a little bit like a kind of pub quiz, you know, who can, who can think of a name? And by the end of that six months, we had a, we had a, a show that was at the Blue Coat in Liverpool and um, we gathered 46 names. Um, but then I kind of thought, I mean, usually because I, I have often worked from project to project to project in different situations with different groups of people. And I kind of thought that that was the end of it. Um, and then, you know, I put it in a show, document the show. I give a lot of talks about my work in various art galleries. And so I would then start to talk about this project and, and then without any expectation, people in the audience would come to me with little bits of, you know, an envelope or whatever they could write on to give me a name. Oh. And and so that's literally how the project grew. That's um, so beautiful. And then people would start to come with, like, a plastic bag and say, well, you know, we have these in the attic, would you like them? And they'd be, like, LPs and just oh. memorabilia. Uh, and it just kind of it kind of took on a life of its own and in that people would just really, I don't know, it just sparked something in people to kind of say, oh, well, maybe if you're doing that, maybe you'd like to know about this person or that person. So by, so now, you know, kind of 23 years later, um, there's over 350 performers and it's spread now, not just singers, musicians. Right. Um, that date back to the mid-19th century wow. to the present day. And then older ones, that's a name, or have you actually got material from, or, or it's mainly, ephemera or anything? Yeah, it's, main, it's mainly like, I, I, so usually I do a kind of, um, kind of internet search on, on I haven't got much material of, that dates back to, right. but names or, you know, I'll kind of do a search and there'll be a certain performer who may have, who may have, and had something in the newspaper. I mean, there are there's there are some extraordinary life stories that I've kind of discovered in this process. Mm -hmm. But people just giving me giving me a name, and I just go off and I kind of think, oh, oh okay, who's this person and what have they done? And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you know one of the uh, one of the oldest uh, performers that's in the in, in the collection is. Uh, Amanda Aldridge, who had been, who was the daughter of the black Shakespearean actor Ira Aldridge, and she was a composer. She actually had a sister of hers, and I'm going to forget her sister's name, was also a composer. But she performed, she used to perform, you know, at the end of uh, the 19th century and into the 20th century under the name Montague Ring as a kind of pseudonym. And, you know, you kind of wonder all sorts of things about you know why did she feel that she needed a pseudonym in order to kind of get work I suppose so you know there are all sorts of just amazing stories it's such an interesting question the initial um, thought behind this whole incredible project that's gone on for a long long time now yeah. um when you actually think about it because it really does spark something within people's soul I think because it's really that that word devotional like I got me thinking earlier about like who which singers played a kind of role in my childhood say and I got thinking about people like Lena Fiagby who who did a few songs she did one called what, what's it like to be beautiful mm -hmm. and she did another one called God gotta get it right so you and, just added another lane okay right so I'm gonna well, get that yeah she's British yeah mm. and 
she's someone that I always sing the songs, even to this day. Yeah. And she she isn't mainstream. I don't even know if you can stream her music on right. on Apple or whatever. Oh, but people would remember her from the early 90s, maybe like 93, 94. And Gotta Get It Right then became a kind of dance hit later and had a whole other life, which weirdly my brother who passed away was DJing like the month before he died. So I think for me, I'd got this kind of connection to her music. Yeah. But I don't know where she's gone. And I, I loved her so much. And she, she really put herself in front in all the visuals as well. So her first music video was... Was like her walking around London but all in black and white totally beautiful human being like I love her and I always think about her but it's so it got me thinking in this project like that's the reason you're getting so many people writing down because mm. when music speaks to people you it becomes part of who you are and like yeah, it's your you, identity. you love yeah. them though don't you yeah. you have this real devotional love yeah and and but also you can really pinpoint a particular moment or a particular feeling from one of their sounds. Yes. It's nostalgia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that just kind of, it connects you to them, but also connects you to a whole range of other people that you don't necessarily have to know. Mm. But it's like, it becomes a kind of moment that you, that that sits, and I, I don't know why it sits with us in the way it does. Yeah. Um, I know that when, when, when people might have Alzheimer's or dementia, they often use music to kind of reconnect people to, to particular moments in their life. So there's something, there's a certain part of the brain that somehow holds all of that kind yeah. of... That knowledge. You see ballet dancers, don't you? And they play oh, the ballet yes. music. That's Swan Lake. That will... And they remember the whole choreography. Yeah. Yeah. So when you initiated this whole project, had you thought like really deeply about it before you asked no. the question or was no. it more spontaneous in a way? No. sorry. No, 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 I wish really I could say, I yeah. wish I could say, yes, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd sit and I'd, I'd written a thesis about what, you know, what these connections. No, I was really just, um, I was in, actually, I was intrigued by something that had happened to me. I I was, I'd, I'd done a residency. This was in around 97, 98. I'd done a residency in Manchester and uh, I had a studio in the art history department and I was travelling from London to Manchester quite you know, every week. And for some reason, I remembered a song by Susan Cadogan called Hurt So Good. And it was a song that you know, I'd grown up with in my teenage years. You know, me and all my you know, girlfriends, we would just sing this song um, to each other. And I remembered it in its entirety. And I was like, really? Like, how? And I haven't heard that since the 70s. Why have I remembered the entire song? So I then went back to the studio and wrote it down. It looked completely, completely different to my recollection. The actual lyrics are quite are quite broody, I would say, broody. I mean, basically, it's about a kind of sadomasochistic relationship. But when I was 15, I had no idea that mm. that's what the song was about. I was just really drawn by its melody mm. and then was amazed that I remembered the song. Um, so that's really what started my interest in trying to kind of think about um, music and sound and how it lives with us somehow. Mm, mm. Um, and what I then did with that, with the with the lyrics of the song, was that I then made a wallpaper using the lyrics because I realised, and you know, I'm sure we will talk about wallpaper at some point, um, that like wallpaper songs particular popular songs have a, a particular pattern they have a verse they have a chorus they'll have mm. a verse they'll have a chorus and so i then kind of i don't know something synaptic happened where i just kind of thought oh there's a repeat pattern here in the way that songs work and i was i've been really interested in wallpapers for a long time so i made a wallpaper from the lyrics of this song um so yeah these things just kind of they they come around 
in my head anyway, in quite organic ways that I don't, I, I have no um, reasonable explanation for. Mm. What are the rules then for this? Is it is it an ongoing archive? Every time there's an artist that's kind of new and released, do you then add their name? I, I need to know. So, so usually someone tells me about right. it. Someone tells me tells me about it um tells me about them and then i just go and do some research and then i if if i i i do have a i do have an addiction to charity shops and secondhand record stores um uh i i i don't i don't down i don't do any downloads it's always material things that i'm I can't. So I have a. It's I quite analog. Then the collection. It's very, very analog. The collection. Um, I don't. I. I. I don't. I think maybe because I'm just a bit too 20th century. I haven't quite figured out what to do with the download thing yeah, yeah. because it's like, how do you, you know, how how do you put it back out there in the world? Whereas with CDs and vinyl records and you know, the the whole package that comes with. Those objects, I'm really object, I think, um, obsessed, mm. uh, that I find it easier that way. Have um, you had any female artists tell you themselves, come up to you and say, I need to be on in your archive? Uh, a composer, yeah, a composer did. Um, but not not usually. And most of them don't even know that they're part of the project. You know, it's like... like I, you I, just told Andy. Yeah, you? well, I just yeah. told Andy today that... And she's, I know, it's usually, oh, oh, that's really interesting. And actually, in terms of the 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 Venice project, it was the first time that I was working with with those performers, and the first time they were hearing about the devotional project. But you were aware of these performers that are in the yeah. exhibition beforehand. I I was aware of them. They weren't aware of me. <laughs> and I we 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 basically approached them and said, would you be would you be interested in doing this project and trying to explain that I'm really interested in people just improvising. Um, and they they agreed to, to just try this thing out, which I think is quite brave given that, you know, they are they are their own material, you know, they are that they are their work, you know, and that mm. their reputations are really um so bound up with, you know, who they are and how they present themselves in right. the world that they were prepared to just turn up and I, they were quite square. They were quite scared. It has to be said. But improv is scary. As an actor, you do improv, but you you have to just think. The f- you open your mouth, and the first thing comes out. And I I think that's why I respond to your work so well because improv is such a huge passion of mine. And and and, and Rob's and seeing these singers, it yes, they must have been nervous, but there must have been a moment where the switch went, and they were yeah. just loving life, like because you see them when when they take off. <laughs> there's a freedom, isn't there? Oh my god, yeah. there's a release because yeah. you've got no rules. Yeah, it's like oh, there's no boundaries, there's no parameters. I can just do whatever I want and. It's beautiful to watch. It's it's magical. I mean, I do think that. Um, I mean, with all the projects, because improvisation is is what I'm really um, interested in. There is a real. You can almost cut the air with the tension before things start. Yeah. People kind of looking at each other like, "What? What are we supposed to be doing here?" Yeah. And then when it starts, it just goes whoosh, and it's just. I mean, I. Th- I think I do it because of the adrenaline that comes with it. When people really so you just, get the rush with them as well. Yeah. Do you feel nervous before you start? Absolutely, it's like what if no one does anything? What you know? Because there's a whole crew that's been brought together to document whatever happens. What if people just sit there and just look at each other? I suppose I'd have to use that, but you know, it's it's that sense that I have no idea what's going to happen. No one has any idea what's going to happen. 
this is whatever we record is it. So I've got had, to work with what, that. Did you have one day and you was at Abbey Road Studios as well, yeah, right? Yeah, we had, yeah, one day. Uh, and it, it was a really short day. I think we'd finished by, definitely we'd finished by four. And wow. the, 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 the performance, they'd come in at about 10, 10.30. But we didn't really get started to about 12. And you brought in an amazing composer called Erilyn Wallen. Erilyn Wallen, who um, she composes for voice. And actually, without her, I think it would have been incredibly difficult to have got the kind of performances that 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 Jackie Dankworth and Poppy Ajuda and Tanita Tikaram were able to. She she became quite a hand, you know, like a handrail for them because she would mm. make these suggestions. And then, uh, and the the thing that I really loved about Erilyn was that she was one she was really gentle with them because they had never improvised before and they because they are all kind of well Poppy and and Tanita particularly are soloists so they're not used to singing with other singers um and she just was she would say things like okay so I want you to make this sound um but it doesn't have to be a beautiful sound and it was almost like someone turned on a a switch You know, which I think particularly for um, female singers within the pop industry or within the music industry, they are expected to sound nice. Perfect. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And to be told, well, you know, you don't. we're just trying something out here. You don't have to. It got me thinking a lot about um, songwriting because when you write a song, when I used to write songs as a kid or whatever, um, you, you often make quite awful things to begin with and you do these long periods of experimentation that could last days or it could just last an hour and often you will make voices and sounds that are really appalling actually you might even sing it out of tune or those things and when I was watching Tanita Tikram's performance I, I really saw the songwriter in mm. her as well mm. and that and, and, I, and that's a side you don't often see because you don't normally watch someone write a song yeah. it's a very private act and I love how public it becomes in those films it's like it's really exciting she was extraordinary Extraordinary, yeah. because she had come with something prepared. I mean, the the way that the day was kind of organised was that in the the kind of morning session up until lunchtime, we we bring them all together and they would they would just kind of hopefully riff off of off of each other, and then in the afternoon one by one they brought something that they wanted to sing, um, or wanted to perform. So Tanita had brought something that she'd prepared, but she was just very open to. Mm the experience of just kind of just seeing what happened. So she sat there at the piano and made up five songs on the spot Mm. and just thinking, you know, we all sat there just thinking, oh, my gosh, Mm. how can you do that? Yeah. And and I I just find those songs, they really do, you know, people talk about earworms. They just, you know, I could be doing anything and suddenly those songs that she's just kind of made up just kind of, surround me in my head um and you just kind of think wow that is quite extraordinary yeah. to not have a script to sit down and think oh, yeah I can't. and she's if you if i hope when people watch the films of tanita she's not even looking at the piano she's just feeling it she's yeah. just feeling mm. and just kind of like and the songs are beautiful mm. they're just really stunning and you just kind of think how did wow. you how did you do that? Were they aware they were going to be part of the representation of Great Britain at the Venice Biennale when they signed up? Yeah. So that that was yeah. Um, I I tried to be as clear as possible with with all the people that I'm working with. You know, so this you know, there's usually a a project that's going to be shown somewhere. Right. Um. 
so you know people are informed right at the beginning of that so you normally work for a project yeah i mean i go from project to project right, to project right. so the, the the projects kind of shift in terms of they don't they're not they don't all look the same um but my method tends to be pretty much the same in terms of just saying would you be interested i'm really i'm really um, interested in the way in which just talking for instance generate something that I find quite material mm. um so you know I, I've been doing another project concurrently that was is just closed it was at um it was at the Serpentine called Radio Ballads and I was the the whole project was about um was a collab was a partnership between the Serpentine their civic program and um, London Borough of Barking and Dagenham. Mm. And so there were four artists that were being commissioned and I was one of them. And um, I was kind of invited to um, look at the question of domestic uh, domestic abuse and domestic violence. And so we this was during the time of lockdown. It was really very oh stressful to kind of do anything when one has a kind of social practice of bringing people together. So I was doing lots of interviews with um, uh, people who had experienced uh, domestic abuse. Um, Just within Barkin and Dagnum? Yeah. Right. And I, we were doing Zoom. I was doing Zoom interviews with people. God. Uh, and then also I was doing some workshops with people who work in social care or therapeutic care with people who experienced domestic abuse. But they were safe when you were talking to them. These weren't people experiencing it during the lockdown. Well, during the lockdown, I think there was a very high incidence yeah. of 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 uh of abuse that was going on. Yeah. Uh it was actually very harrowing with the workshops that we were doing, which were all about talking uh with the with the people that work in uh, the field of social care. Yeah. Um, every single workshop that we did, at least one or two people who would suddenly say, "Sorry, I've just got to, I've got to step out. I've just got to go and deal with something." And then they'd come back about half an hour, and then you could see that they were like, "Oh, okay, something had something had happened with one of the people that they were working with." And and this happened every single time we did a workshop. So you know, it it was. It's it, it's been a very strange time that kind of trying to how one might stay connected and for me you know the talking and then people knowing what the project is about and knowing the parameters and knowing their role in it. I mean, I actually got to speak to a perp a, a perpetrator who I thought was really really interesting and really brave that he um, agreed to kind of talk about his experience of and what he has. I suppose the point that he'd come to when we were doing the interview, because he'd gone on a perpetrator um, course, basically, and so we we were talking. So using so oh my god, out of these interviews, you rarely get that other. You very side rarely of get, and there was there was a lot of uh, within the team and with some of the people that were kind of advising. There was a lot of discussion about um, whether whether. Um, whether there should be, whether I should be giving space to mm. a perpetrator's voice. Um, and I felt that it was really important to, to do that. For, maybe for selfish reasons, I'm not sure, that I wanted to have some kind of understanding, really. 
um, how how someone who has perpetrated violence against their partner how how they're processing what had kind of happened. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was really harrowing. But I suppose the point that I'm trying to get to is that it was literally out of talking that I was then able to make this work, which was a kind of four screen work with not with the people that I'd interviewed, but with some other people who I felt were in a much better place to be able to to work with other people and not not be too vulnerable to be filmed and to be exploring these questions. But it literally was coming out of talking with people. And of course, conversations like this one are always um, spontaneous and unscripted and they go in all sorts of directions. And then kind of, and then pulling back from that, actually trying to see, you know, how to make work from that experience, mm. from that material that's been, that's been generated by the kind of to and fro that goes on between people. Collaboration is one of your biggest materials yeah. in your practice. Yeah. And has it been from the start? No, no. I mean, when I was, when I was, oh God, we, we, we're going back to the dark ages now. When I was, um, <laughs> when I was a student in the early years of, of you know, being an artist, I was often using myself as as the kind of protagonist. I would draw myself mainly because I, you know it was cheaper to use myself than to hire a model for the things. But then I kind of had a, a kind of anxiety, you could say, about always being this central figure in the work. And it wasn't until I, in the 90s that I started to invite other people into the work. Um, and at that point, I was, I was, uh, I was living in Brixton and uh, living in a shared, shared cooperative house I lived in, in lots of like squats and housing association kinds of places. But the house that I lived in and also the road that we all lived on, Relton Road, there were lots of creative people there living uh, in that neighbourhood. Just coincidentally? or uh, Yeah, just co. I, I mean, I think, I think, I think Rickson has for a long time attracted creatives. Um, and we had a dark room in, uh, we, we built a dark room in the house. And so there was always lots of people coming to the house to use the dark room. But also in terms of the household, we were all, you know, the, there were three photographers. And I, I think I was kind of transitioning from being a, what people often call me as a painter. I was never really a painter, but, um, and we would just kind of try things out. And actually within the house, there was a lot of play and dressing up or dressing down um, right. and taking photographs <laughs> and using the dark room. But it was like became the house and but also people that we knew in the area. Everybody's space seemed to be like a laboratory where you could just... Not, nobody else was watching. We were just enjoying ourselves in terms of just make. So it's through that, really, that I started to see... Um, that there were more possibilities in terms of making work that it didn't I didn't have to rely on myself in a particular way that actually through exploring and experimenting with other people not necessarily and that, at that point it wasn't for projects it was just because we had a dark room and we we could we could just 
experiment. We could just experiment. It also feels quite Bauhaus, quite like happenings. <laughs> yeah. You know, they were never really recorded, but you, Oscar Schlemmer style, it just yeah. sort of happened. And if you yeah. were there, you talked about it and they become stuff of legends. Yeah. It feels like you must have had a lot of happenings. We had a lot of happenings. <laughs> we had a lot of happenings. I'm not going to go there for libelous reasons. Um, um, but yeah, there, it was, it was um, you know, the... the you know, there were writers, photographers, stylists, um, but also living in a, in, in a cooperative where you you have to get on with people. There, you know, we were all living in shared shared accommodation. So if you're amongst lots of creatives, you, it it kind of just happens. Yeah, a um, happening happens. A happening just happens. And this was the end of the seventies. No, so that no, that was by the nineties. Ah. Uh, end of the eighties into the nineties. I was. I was living in in in, in Brixton, and um, it was it was a it was a great time, you know. And that was also the emergence of the Black British Art Movement, which that was, people, a, decade that was earlier, a decade earlier, yeah, okay. uh, in the early eighties. And yeah. you were the youngest member of that kind of group of artists who got bought by the Tate. Is that right? So your work, your your yeah. figurative work, yeah, got bought by the Tate. Yes, that that was. Um, yeah, so the yeah, so the early nineteen eighties. Um, I was a student. I, I I went to study in a very small town called Stourbridge in the West Midlands, and um, I say very small. There were probably maximum about ten other black people in the town. In the town, mm. um, and doing fine art. I was doing fine art there, and. There weren't really many examples of, you know, black British artists. You know, I, I didn't even know if there were any. And then what happened is, this was 1982, is a group of students um, around Wolverhampton, what used to be the Poly, is now, um, is now the art school, um, or the University, Wolverhampton University, organised the first national convention of black artists. And I saw a poster for this and I just thought, wow, what's that? And I went to the conference and I've, I've, I think I was in my second year, going into my third year, and going into this conference. And there's a room of over 200 people and thinking, why have I never heard of any of these people before? Mm. Um, you know, there were there's someone like Rashida Reen, um, who was very instrumental from the 60s onwards, someone like Frank Bowling, who was was who studied at the Royal College and was in the same year as David Hockney, mm. um, who subsequently he's you know people know about mm. him a lot now, mm. um, but there you know there, and then the 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 actual group that had organised the conference were like eighteen year olds, you know they were students and they organised this big event where all these people came. And that's how I became very involved with the Black Art group. I wasn't in the group, but I was part of this kind of groundswell of people who were just thinking, wow, there's something happening here that is really, um, really important. Um, and it really changed the way I made work. Um, and we were self-organising exhibitions because, you know, when you're young, you just think, oh, you go and knock on the door and say, oh, well, I want your space, you know, open up your space so that we can have an exhibition. And some spaces did, some um, museums did. Um, but it was very much about self-organising and being part of a, being, I suppose, yeah, the early part of me being part of a collective or collaborating with other people to get something done. And how did it lead to the Tate 
um, acquiring one of your works. Were you the first black female British artist to be in the Tate Collection? Is that correct? Yes, yes, I was at the very tender age of 25. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, which was... But it... (laughs) It's 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 because I it, in a way it didn't I I didn't know that I was the first one at that point, uh, and this was this was a sale that was negotiated by an amazing curator um, who's since died called Karen Four Walker, who um, I was as as soon as I came well in my third year. Sorry, I feel I'm doing a lot of the history. <laughs> Uh, no, it's great. Uh, so in my third year, or throughout my time at Stourbridge, I was part of a very small um, student feminist group. And there were no... It wasn't until we were in our third year that we had a... Um, Anne Lydiot became a um, part-time tutor on the course. But before her, there was no female tutors on the course. And so we were campaigning throughout the three years that I was there that we should have a female uh, member of staff and we we were really pushing for an artist called Susan Hiller mm. um, and in our third year she we finally got the, wow. the, the art school to get her to come in and she then did tutorials with me and because oh. um, I loved I loved I loved her work and uh, and then she said well one, I think you should. I think you should um, apply to the Royal Academy to do your MA, and then um, and then she went and spoke to a gallery called Gamble Feast, uh, and she was being represented by Gamble Feast at the time. Uh, they were on Davies Street in 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 Mayfair. Um, so she introduced me to the gallery, and they then started to show my work. And the person that was her, you know, was. Uh, the person who brought her into Gamble Feast was Karen Four Walker. Mm. So, uh, so for a short while, um, I say, you know, I was quite young at the time. Um, Karen, what Karen did was that she was she was kind of knocking on the doors of most of the institutions to say, I think that, you know, I think you should have some of this work in your collection. So that's how the work got in the collection. It wasn't me knocking on anyone's doors. Mm. It was Karen Four Walker as a kind of, you know someone who was really looking out for me. Um, and was the Tate the Tate then? Did it feel it, it, it had this legacy, this kind of history? and? Yeah, it, it, it was before it became Tate Britain and all the other Tates. This was really very, you know, it was just... 1987, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it was... It, and I was really pleased because I needed the money. Um, mm. And I... But I didn't... Because I wasn't really... I was really young and I wasn't really... I wasn't... Um, I was just doing stuff. It wasn't a, a case of having a kind of career path because, in a way, there wasn't there was no roadmap. Mm. At, you know, at that point, you know, the, to say oh that one was a black female artist was like, well, what's that? You know, nobody. It wasn't. It wasn't something that was you know fully recognised that one could be. So there was no roadmap for me. So I, I just kind of thought, oh, great, the work's there. I get paid. I can get, I can do some more work. I can pay some bills. You know, it, I wasn't really thinking about again this question of the weight of history because it yeah. just it it hadn't it didn't it didn't occur to me that this was a major thing. Yeah. It was just yeah, they bought some work, great, yay. Is it true that Frida Kahlo inspired you to, Act, to make yeah. those figurative sort of self those early works? Yeah, yeah. Because there was a there was a show that was at um, Whitechapel 
that I saw, it must have been 81, 82 mm. of her work. And it was like, you know, she became this, uh, she became my guidebook, actually, mm. um, for how to how to say many things in 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 one work, you know, particular um paintings of hers, um Frida and I, which this the two Fridas, one where she's um dressed in kind of Mexican costume, I suppose. Um and and next and next to her she's in a kind of um so-called western clothes or another one where she's kind of cut all of her hair off and she's wearing a man's suit and for me those early works of of mine were trying not only to emulate uh Frida Kahlo but I suppose the thing that I recognize took me a while to recognize that she's performing in all of those works you know she's very aware of of addressing an audience when she's making those works. Mm. So for me, those works are very much about performances that she's kind of carrying out, which kind of then made much more sense when I then started to work with performers mm. or, or saw myself as performing for the work. Um, that I, yeah, she was, you know, she was like, I carried that book around, like my life depended on it, a kind of wow. small monograph of hers and was really very, um, for a long time, really studying um, how she how she was putting together certain narratives, but very much they were about performing and performing identities in life. Yes, yes. This was a pastel called Missionary Position then that went entered the collection. When was the last time you saw it in the flesh? I can't remember. A good 20-odd years, really? possibly. Maybe longer, maybe longer. Um, but you've seen, have you looked at an image of it recently? Because it must be reprinted. When... Yeah, I've seen it reprinted. Um, what so does that feel like? Um, it kind of feels like my other self. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember doing that. <laughs> so you do remember making them? Oh, yeah, I remember making them. Uh, there's there's one, the the very last of, of those works where I would, I'm kind of this, the main protagonist, you could say, is a, is a work called um, She Ain't Holding Them Up, She's Holding On, Some English Rose. Yeah. Um, and, and that actually, again, was really influenced by Frida Kahlo because she had made this painting where she's almost like a kind of toddler and it's uh, Frida, her, her, her parents and her grandparents. And so this work, that work was my work, um, Shane holding them up, um, was about actually visualising a kind of family tree somehow. Um, so I really did, I really did use to study um her work quite uh, intently, not trying to, not trying to, um, not trying to make a transcription of them or a, or a, a copy of them, but was very much influenced by them. Well, Rob's a super fan. Frida Kahlo for him was uh, his. It was my entry in. point into art. That's ah. how I got even interested. Weirdly, because I saw it um, on a Panorama show that Madonna had bought one of the paintings. And he loved Madonna. And I yeah. loved Madonna. And then that led to me loving Frida and then to Louise Bourgeois and then to Tracy ah. and then onwards through to today meeting you. Ah. But um, in that work where you're holding on to the past, to the mm -hmm. previous generation in a sense, while making sense of your present, mm -hmm. you know, at that point when you made that drawing, I love the roses um, in the mm. fabric um, and there's a patterned kind of dress or um, cl clothes that you're wearing mm -hmm. that has this black rose mm. and there's there's that sense of it being you know black British history mm. but also like this idea of 
the English rose. Mm. Um, can you can we like segue in from that patterned fabric into your interest into um, kind of repeated motifs of like wallpaper or patterns, or sure. which also does play such a central theme within the Venice show? Sure. Lovely segue. Um, that was very. Well, I was trying really to nice. connect. That's really nice. I was trying to connect the past of your work We're to the very present. Very impressed with you, Robert. Yes. Oh, okay, thank that, you. That was such great, actually. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. It was good. Um, Tenuous. Uh, no, not at all tenuous, actually. Um, you know, one of the... Okay, I'm going to go back, but yeah, I'm going yeah. to try and keep track of my thoughts. No, it's also because I'm conscious that sometimes when artists have been making work over, like, numerous decades, mm-hmm. I feel like often interviews end up being about the past, mm-hmm. when actually, in a way, we want to hear about now, yeah. because that's, like, interesting as well. But um, you, have, yeah. you have actually described yourself as being mothballed. In yeah, exactly. Yeah, in, in terms that. of the eight, in the yeah, 80s, getting yeah. sort of frozen in time. So and actually, sort of like you're frozen more... aspic at that time. It's yeah. like yeah. That, that's definitive of you, and that's it. There's some yeah. sort of like, and people like, oh, like, why do why you. why are you not doing those anymore? I mean, I I hear that all the time, uh, and I I have to admit, I do get a bit annoyed when people say, oh, why aren't you doing those 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 paintings or drawings anymore? And it's like, well, actually, I came to a really very clear, like, full stop with yeah. them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Yeah. Um, but the, the question about the wallpapers and the repeat patterns um, came about really, um, would I, shall I say, out of laziness? Possibly. <laughs> um, so when I, when I was 15, my teacher at school, Mrs. Franklin, said she'd kind of taken me under her wing and she said, uh, you need to go to art school. And I didn't know what an art school was because nobody in my family had ever gone to art school. And uh, basically, she was sending me one day a week from from school to go and do life drawing. And so Arthur, who was the life drawing tutor, used to always chastise me because I would be drawing the figure, but I would never put anything in the background. Mm. Um and you say, you've got to give the figure a context. You, you know, you can't just draw the figure itself. So when I, when I, and I'm going forward now a few years, when I was at Stourbridge and I, as a consequence of meeting the Black Art Group and lots of the debates that were happening around the kind of black figure and black representation, and I started to use myself and I was just drawing myself and then I could hear Arthur saying in my head, where is the background? And part of that experience of, you know, kind of trying to 
state who I was within the context of growing up in the UK and my parents, I I kind of I had written a lot. I wrote a lot in my in my sketchbooks all the time, and I wrote a lot about the domestic space of the Caribbean home, and you know, highly patterned, very kind of sensorial space, and lots of wallpaper. My mother used. I said, drive my mother mad with. I would draw on the wallpaper because I was always drawing on everything that I could find. So I then thought, oh, maybe I just need some uh, some wallpaper design. So I went to the library and got out this really massive book on the history of, of wallpapers. And thought, well, actually, I'll draw the figure. Maybe I can just copy the pattern in the background. And it was miraculous that it just filled the space. <laughs> and I kind of thought, wow. And so ever since then, I've that has that became the moment of then realising that I could, it's almost like kind of collage, you could say, of that I could just supplant something patterned in the background and it it does something spatially. Mm. Uh, and so I then got very interested in William Morris and um, you know, some of the discussions about the arts and crafts movement. Um, I, still, I still find William Morris incredibly... Um, the work's really beautiful because the geometry, because I've since, since the 19s, I've been trying to make my own wallpapers and the geometry of the William Morris designs are just so interesting. You can't see where the join is, mm. where the repeat happens. Um, he was just incredibly skilled at creating these kind of worlds, you could say, that were about, actually about world gardens. Um in, so I just kind of fell in love with how what what repeat patterns could do, and so I was using it very kind of quite slightly, you could say, when I was a student, and then it just always would just kind of creep back into the work, um, recognizing what patterns might be or how to do a pattern, um, and of course with by by the time of the 90s, I just kind of thought, actually, I need to make my own. I need to learn how to do this. And so I was, I would be printing designs. There's a there's a um, really interesting British artist called Abigail Lane. Yes. Mm. Who had made a series of... She's like a YBA artist. Yeah. yeah. Who'd made these series of wallpapers with a bum print or she'd made, she'd made a really harrowing one of where it looked like some something violent had happened but she'd created a kind of repeat pattern and so as well as of course Andy Warhol had made wallpapers uh, and actually it's through thinking about Andy Warhol that it's that the wall that wallpapers could sit within a gallery space and sit very confidently within them that it, there wasn't something acronistic about bringing that language into the kind of white cube space um, Could but, we ever have Sonia Boyce wallpaper in our own domestic dwellings at some point? I think so. Yeah? I, yes, I can do that. <laughs> Whether anybody would want it is another thing. Well, I was thing. about to say, you, you've got two customers right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also thinking about art sliding doors. That If this Arthur, your tutor, hadn't told you to fill the background... Mm. We might not be seeing you would not be or, seeing this. or the other teacher as well because weren't you like doing doodles in the in the margins well, yeah, of oh, your yeah. school sure. books? But, but and she, she saw that and recognised that you. Were, that's what I mean in the intro. I, I was mean, trying to re- say really, that. really. I mean, I do think 
you know, my life has often been a series of people just opening doors saying, do you want to come through here? Oh, oh do you want to go through that door? Oh, look over there. That, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, what's that? And then suddenly I'm in something mm. and I kind of think, and I'm kind of looking around thinking, oh, actually I can, I can kind of make sense of doing something here. But it literally has been a series of people just going, oh, just... No, but you've, you've also opened doors, though, for so many people. Yeah. And not even just artists, but I know that you've been an educator for, like, a long, long time. And obviously you are teaching art, but I'm sure a lot of those students have gone on to do different careers. You know, not everyone ends up being a full-time artist because it's obviously a huge struggle and a difficult career sort of choice to navigate. But um, can you speak a bit about that whole history as well? Because I love that you have um, sort of dedicated, like, more than 30 years to 35 teaching. Years. 35 years. yeah. Yes, actually, it's nearly 40, 40 it's yeah. 39 years. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And how rich that is as an experience oh, to I, teach I, I and to love, share. I, yeah. I, I have to say, uh, I love the art school. Um, the, I love the studio space. I love what happens in the studio space. I love, uh, particularly when there's a group of people who are trying to figure out what they're doing. And, you know, one of the things about, you know, kind of, art training is that you have to be very not only self-motivated but quite self-directed but be able to be in conversation with others who are doing the same thing so everybody's trying to figure out what they're doing mm. and figuring out through those conversations the potential of the work um i mean i'm sure that happens in theater and, oh, yeah. Yeah, and you know that actually through being with or in the same space there's something there's a kind of Something almost intangible that happens where it's about a dialogue, it's about the atmosphere that people together are creating. So I love teaching. I was really, sh uh, I actually started teaching immediately after I'd finished my degree. Um, when I, the foundation that I was on um, in, at East Ham, the tutors got me to come and do teaching. And I was convinced that I didn't know anything. I was convinced that I hadn't learned anything at art school because it's really, <laughs> it's often really intangible. It's really hard to kind of say, well, actually, I learned these things. Mm -hmm. And what was really a, a, a great surprise when I started teaching on the foundation course was that um, I understood what the students were trying to do. And I'm like, God, how did I know that? You know, it's like... Oh, I must have, I must have picked that up somewhere along the line because I, you know, what you it's it's not the kind of experience of oh today we're going to learn you're going to learn how to do this mm. and you have a list of things that you're going to learn and you have, I mean a bit more in terms of teaching now you're supposed to say what the outcomes are meant to be, but really your your there's a kind of there's a kind of osmosis that happens in that space and I was really very surprised tender age of 21 when I started teaching that I you know that I could understand that what someone was trying to grapple with and have those conversations with them subsequently and again this is around the time of the 90s when I was living in Brixton as I was mentioning um I was I was teaching um at Goldsmiths I was teaching both at Goldsmiths and at Glasgow School of Art and that's quite a trip yeah, I used to go up uh, every few weeks to Glasgow. I loved that course. I thought mm. they were brilliant. Uh, um, this was the MFA course. And um, at Goldsmiths, um, we were talking a lot about the work of Sophie Cow and the way in which Sophie Cow would, I can't say work with people, but other, the work would rely on other people in order for it to be made. So we were talking a lot about a kind of social practice 
Um, now, why am I speaking about this? I'm trying to retrace my thoughts. Um, that, Subsequently, you said. So, yeah. At that time, I was also um, in conversation with uh, Jelaine Tawadras, who was doing her MA in art history. She's just about to become the uh, director of the Whitechapel Art Gallery, which is absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Uh, everybody is like really cheering her on because I think it's going she's going to do a really fabulous job there. Um, and she kind of introduced me to the work of Lydia Clark. Now I don't know if you know yeah, yeah. the work yeah. of Lydia Clark and. She's Latin American artist. Latin yeah. Brazilian who yeah. exiled, um, uh, went to live in, in Paris and then through, she then, um, when she was in Paris, was teaching at the Sorbonne and actually did a lot of her experiments around how kind of re people relating through objects mm -hmm. um, and really treated the, the studio space as if it was a... A laboratory mm. and she was working with a lot of her students to kind of just explore often really really mundane um materials string a plastic bag a stone and out of these kind of experiments that that she was doing there's some extraordinary works were kind of made so it's through Jelaine that I got to know about Lydia Clark and really that it, it, that was the kind of turning point of the work being very much about making you know these kind of two-dimensional images to get involved and this was happening concurrently with me living in Brixton and living in this very kind of lively um house with the dark room and so it, all of that was kind of happening at the same time realizing that actually through exchange and it's fed into my teaching so for me the studio is a laboratory and working with people with the ideas that they have and trying to get somewhere and trying to figure out what they're doing as it's unfolding. So I love, I you know, I've kind of surrounded myself in that kind of environment where I think I'm, I, I think I get bored with just being on my own in the studio. Mm. And I, I, I get a lot of energy by being with other people. And it, I, you know, ideas sparking off each other. and That's the collaboration, isn't it? And that's the collaboration. But though collaboration always sounds like it's great fun, but it's really tough. I, in terms of people's personalities, egos, you know, trying to understand what, um, what's motivating people to do things in particular ways. Right. Um, I also think just on a psychic energy level, like, you know, having other people's thoughts and ideas and presence and energy around you all the time. Um, I know that you know a friend of ours, Lindsay Mendick, and Lindsay's running with her partner, Guy Oliver, a space in Margate called Quench. And I know that she almost has so many, like, thoughts all the time and she loves having people around her um, while she's making her work. So it's kind of a, a healthy thing, a bit like yourself. But at the same time, I think sometimes it can get really exhausting, can't yeah, it? Just yeah. to have all those different ideas all the time and but also the different energies you know one of the one of the uh, in the early 2000s i did a i was doing a fellowship where i was trying to figure out this question of working with other people and uh this had come about because i had um, made a film with two a set of twins and i was trying to direct them and they were it was really clear to them and I could see that they could see that I didn't know how to direct. And so I would ask them to do a thing and then they'd start doing what I'd ask. And then they'd start to improvise and do 
lots of completely different things. So I had a producer and I had a camera person and the producer, James, was saying, is this what you want? And I was like, actually, what I want was really very simple and really formal. What they're doing, I don't quite understand what they're doing, <laughs> but it's really interesting. Yeah. Let's just keep the camera rolling because I don't know what this is. But it was really clear that I was not a director. You know, that I hadn't got, I, I'd gone in with a set of ideas, but they were, they had really taken up their own agency within, within, you know, we were in the studio and they, yeah, they, they felt they could do what they wanted. And I've, I've been there when I've been with a director and nobody trusts them. And you sort of will look at each other and go, we've yeah. got to do this ourselves, yeah. haven't we? Yeah. Not saying yeah. that's what you yeah. do, yeah, but, but, really, but the thing that's is, what performers it, do. But it, what, that's what really interested me was the, the fact that I, the idea that I had was quite dry. Uh. And what they were doing was so unexpected. Mm. And, I mean, of course, it was a bit of a dent to my ego. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> Huge. <laughs> but I kind of thought, but there's something really interesting happening that I would never have thought of doing. Mm-hmm. And that I actually... They did you a favour. They did me a favour. Yeah. Even though I could tell that they just kind of thought, oh, she just, that's not what she's doing. Let's just do our own thing here. But actually, it sparked something in me that just kind of thought, okay, let me let me figure something else out about mm. being in a space and um, just saying to people, well, this is your space. Do do what you feel you want to do in the space, rather than me going in with a set of with with a set of ideas. One of the uh, with the 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 singers that are um, in the in the pavilion, we did a Zoom before they met, and they kept saying, "Well, what do you want us to do?" And I kept saying, "I want you to." just do what you want to do and it's like <laughs> and, they, and they were like well, what do you mean I said well you know I suppose you sing so you could sing but really the, we've we've just booked this space and you can do what you want to do in that space and they well what is your intention well that is my intention you know and it's and I I, un, I do understand how terrifying that is but what I was trying to what I was trying to say to them is okay if you're given a space and you're being, um, and I suppose what I'm asking you is, what does freedom look and feel like in this moment, in this space? My only caveat is that you don't hurt anybody. Mm. But other than that, what does freedom feel like and look like or sound like? And what will you, and how will you negotiate each other in that space? And we'll just film whatever happens. And then I'll make a work from it. And that Realising that that's quite terrifying yeah. because... But exhilarating. I mean, it's so freeing. And this freedom as well, it reminds me of this 30-minute uh, video performance called Exquisite Cacophony. Yes. Which is phenomenal. Yes, maybe. And again, I mean, did you feel like a director at that stage when no. you set this up again? Do you feel like a director now? No, 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 I'm right. not. I'm not. I'm. I, I, you know, I. I am resisting being. My, the only thing that I might do in these situations is if I feel that someone's intimidating someone else, I'll step in. Right. But you're a facilitator for talent. Yeah. You're, so you're... I, I'm literally. I'm just creating the space where people can come and do something. And it was. It was really uh, exquisite. Cacophony. That experience was hilarious. Yeah. Um, because. And I and I know that in the projects that I do that that 
I think the tough, the toughest job is for the crew actually, because they, you know, then they, how do they know what's going to happen when it's completely unscripted? Well, it's reality TV, isn't it? it is, yeah, yeah. They feel it's a like, pressure to like document it it's like yeah. properly, yeah. properly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But also, you know, what if nothing happens and we didn't know if anything was going to happen? But this had an audience as well, didn't it? It was live yeah, at we, the VNA. Yeah, so we had booked. We booked the. I'd booked the VNA um, for uh, a performance between astronautalists, who is a kind of grunge rapper, and he's an American, isn't American, he? American, yeah. yeah, and Elaine Michener who is an experimental vocalist. And I brought them together, and they had met, they'd met actually here, um, around the back from here is, is St. Martin's School of Art, and I'd booked a room there the day before. And they got on really well, and they were kind of chatting, chatting away, and it was like, oh, okay, I think this might work. Um, and then, but we had no, uh, no, the, the, I suppose the only instruction was okay because i'd seen astronautalists at many gigs uh, beforehand i know he's really good at talking to the audience and he and he often gets the audience to just give him a word or give him a sentence and then he'll do a rap that kind of encompasses like Rob did when he was a kid when they gave him one line (laughs) absolutely exactly like that and he goes off on a tangent still to this day and and it's very entertaining it's really it's it's really engaging and that and and that's what you know astronauts does you know he does that He's, he's really good at just bringing and I think that's what it is you know when you're conversational with people you just bring them in so that was the only that was the only agreement that he would start, and and at some point Elaine would join him on the stage. But it's like she's heckling him with noises, yeah. and he at one point he just goes, "Oh, just come up then and join yeah. me." Yeah. And then they have this cacophony, and it is very minor keyed, and it is quite hard to listen to. And then suddenly it just they just it goes bonkers. But they but they also find a rhythm or they find a a, a noise together that works. Even there is it, there, there is that in the Venice show as well because there's this yes. moment of harmony and unison and like coming together out of chaos in a way and out of very individual isn't that ideas. When you're fine, yeah, when you're magic. working with another person, you're on the same level, you're in the moment, and you find you go, how do we navigate this? You know what so it is same, as well. Talking the same language. It's a bit like when I came to see you do Deborah Francis White before she did Guilty Feminist. Yeah. She was doing these these noises events around London called Noises in Your Head, oh, wow. and it was like it was stand up. Kind of um, improv show, and she hadn't even done Guilty Feminist at that point. And he invited me along into a theatre near Trafalgar Square, mm-hmm. and they'd invited some well-known comedians, and then an actor like Russell, and then maybe a I don't know a performer of some kind. And they'd all get on stage, and then she'd be talking to them from above as like the voice of God, wow. the and sort of from the wow. audience, like this kind of booming voice of Deborah's, and um, and she would give them instructions and guide them. But by the end of the performance, there was even an interval, maybe that suddenly the performance was really slick. But in the beginning, it's total chaos mm. and. Each stand-up comedian is trying to do their thing. But you're right, then you get to this point of harmony. It's really fascinating. I think there's a certain rhythm that that gets found. Exactly. That that and who's to know what 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 the what the switch is that to kind of turns that on, but that's what I think happens between people. In the it's, intangible. It's, it's really difficult to It's like you both make a decision, I think. 
we both want this. Mm. We both want this to work. Mm. Let's commit to this. Let's see what that is. And you, and you trust the other person you, implicitly in that moment to go, come on in, let's go on this adventure yeah. together. Take my hand. Yeah. You know, and that's and that's the yes thing. And I think l- looking back to Erilyn Wallen, there's a, there's a, a yeah. filming section and you're saying she's going to make a noise like a lion, make a noise. It doesn't have to be a pretty noise. And they would make a noise and she'd be like, that's good. Mm. I like that noise. Mm. How about... So it's always the yes, which yeah. is improv. It's always you say yes. You never say no. You never block. Mm. It's always like yes. You know, if she could have been like, no, not that sort of noise. Ooh. You know that as a performer, you'd be like, you're yeah. Co- yes. Yeah. You just constantly go to someone, you're brilliant. It's an e- I guess it is an ego thing, but yeah. you're really good at this. Yeah. That's great. But how about this as well? It's really interesting. But for me, what, what happens within that, moment is that you do see the way in which people who may not have either done this before or know each other how they find a way to negotiate Mm. doing something together and of course that's always my interest is the dynamics of the dynamics of difference and how we find a way to negotiate something that can be quite incredible and you know that happens in exquisite cacophony that for me, definitely happens in being her way. You know, it, it, we, I think we want to find a way to um, to negotiate our spaces together, and not even even when it gets uh, when we get nervous. I mean, I, I think there's lots of things within exquisite cacophony that make you nervous. Yeah. But it's like, and we'll we'll laugh out of the nerves. Yes. But we'll, you know, they still will. They'll they'll go there, and then it's okay. And then they'll build something again. Yeah. And I, for me, that is really extraordinary. I remember what I was going to say, that when I was in, in relation to the, the, the twins that I'd worked with, um, I eventually went on a um, uh, group relations, to a group relations conference, which basically people who work, it's, it's kind of therapeutic, um, uh, practice where the dynamics of how groups work. Because um, I really, really realised that I was not keeping up with how things were unfolding between people that I would bring together. Um, and so it was really interesting and it, it really did connect me back in many ways to the work of Lydia Clark, that there is something, although it's intangible, something almost tangible can happen between people in the way in which they relate or try and relate mm. that actually gives a kind of character to a performance or um, an installation or usually it's the performances that I'm I'm kind of really interested in. But yeah, I'm interested in how what those dynamics are that make something then go somewhere completely unexpected mm. because people have said, Okay, I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. And there's something quite transcendent, I think. If you're a spectator or sitting in the audience or a viewer, like even on the screen, that's the satisfying moment, isn't it? It's almost like an umami thing with taste. You know, yeah. the way that you have a certain sweet sour thing that gives yeah. you a sensation of that makes you feel good. Yeah. You, you get that from watching even things like Russell's comedy show or like you know the the films that we're talking about that you've made. There is a real satisfaction as a spectator. <laughs> so even the person watching is involved. You yeah, know, in, in and that. and that and that is that. Well, I I like to feel that that the the involvement of people who come to see that is taken into consideration. Mm. You know, so the reason why there's an audience, for instance, uh, the VNA was 
that they that they it wasn't I I suppose I'd got used to a, a certain kind of performance for 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 video or for film mm-hmm. that artists would make, and I wanted to kind of break that that convention a bit by having an audience there so that the, and with the cameras moving and trying to figure out what's going on rather than having this very static you know performing to camera performers would have wanted that if that's what they're used to as well mm. that for them is their fuel yeah. you need an audience you need an audience and, and yeah, they're, they're singing to someone them, hadn't you yeah. and that's part of their practice in a sense you need that live element and that but they also they're singing the audience, to, they yeah. were playing off an yeah. audience mm. and they're playing off each other and they're playing off an audience and that that the dynamic and then and then of course um if you're panning out and that this is in a in a gallery situation then somehow you're drawn into it as well so somehow you become part of it exactly you know one of the one of the things about um again the pavilion show these these seated sculptures that are mirrored and if you walk past them you see a part of yourself because I really wanted in the pavilion for people to not just have a kind of distance to what they were experiencing, but that on many levels that somehow they're implicated in what it is that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can see themselves or when they go to the the uh, gallery four where there's all this memorabilia that's on the wall, even in the gold wallpaper the wallpaper itself you can see yourself moving past mm. so throughout the whole experience that somehow the 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 visitor to the space and the hope is of course with the memorabilia of the musicians that they might recognize someone that they remember the music of so that that relationship to that it's you're not looking at something that's distant and remote and removed that there is somehow that that we're all here in in this and the present moment in the present is moment. present in, yeah in the work yeah yeah, yeah. well that that was the hope the pre-pandemic idea then mm-hmm. of the more tactile mm-hmm. making music of the building mm-hmm. is that something that you want to realize in the future when we're properly out of the pandemic yes I'm, i mean i think I, I i i like the idea of trying to or i have been trying to think about how how to bring something that's performative that the audience are actually performing the work. Yeah. And it's like how to do that. And not necessarily to not necessarily to let go of images necessarily, but a, a space to play. One one of the one of the projects which is very, very difficult for me to show is a, a work that I did at the ICA um called we move in her way where um there's uh, uh, elaine michener again um worked on that project with uh, a, a a dancer stroke sculptor um barbara gamper who brought together these these dancers and i made a series of masks for the audience to come into the theater space of the ica so that they could be part of it but nobody was Hopefully nobody felt that they were being coerced into being part of the performance as it was unfolding. But they, audience members did get very involved to the extent that they, after a while, because the performance we thought was probably going to last about 20 minutes, half an hour, and it lasted over two hours, yeah. and that 
the audience completely took over in terms of playing with all these, playing with each other as well as with these objects. Um, to which point the the dancers left and oh they were my still God, playing. I love this. And the crew <laughs> packed up and they were still playing. And and the the curator at the ICA was she was kind of she was really nervous. And saying to me, I say, Sonia, when's this going to stop? And I said, I don't know. They were just playing. And, and you know, what it, what it made me realise is that as adults, we have very few opportunities to play. Mm. Yeah. And so, so that's why I thought about you know, the first idea for the pavilion was, okay, let's really just make a space where people can just play. And that play isn't only for children. Was this invited audience of patrons and benefactors it, it was just ICA's list Elaine's list my list Barbara's list it was just people that they just kind of put out a call and we knew that we could probably accommodate about 50 people and have you had feedback afterwards of them saying like that experience was kind of transcendent I don't know where I went or what happened oh, really people were like because we, we of course we went to the pub afterwards and people were like what was that what was going so, on? Wow. So what what year was that? that? Yeah, that uh, I really do want to do more of that, but I don't know in what context it, it might happen. Uh, that was 2017. Wow. God, I guess in that experience, you do run the risk of dangers. I guess yeah. if you're having people like running around on stage and sort of doing their own stuff. Yeah. And you, they were the responsibilities literally... <laughs> on you, isn't it? <laughs> it is on me. As I say, unless unless something really dangerous is going on, or something you just let it where go. there's, a, it's just a case of like, let, letting it happen, just seeing <gasps> what emerges. And it's, it's almost like you need to create the space to start with somehow yeah. it being safe. Yeah. So it's not like you're doing it where someone could fall down a, yeah. I don't know, well, you know what I mean? Yeah, something. Yeah. Russell looks so excited right now. He blatantly wants to take part next time. Yeah. Well, you're, you're more than welcome <laughs> to come join us. And you filmed that? Yeah, we filmed that. So that's that became a... Was that seven or nine? Seven screens. And that's two hours long? No, so I then made it... I then, right. you know, what the, they they went on for two hours. But then... So what always happens, I don't, because I'm decided I'm not direct, I'm just seeing what people do. And it gets, so I never look through the camera. I never tell the crew what to do. They do what they are going to do. And then I, I'm just in the room and being part of whatever's going on. And then once it's all been recorded, the material comes to me and I then see it through the material that's been, as documented everything. And do you like the edit? I love editing. Do you do that at home or do you have a studio? I, I, I work with, no, I, I, well, studio. I do have a studio. Um, so Michelle uh, Tofi, who I work with quite regularly, she always brings together a crew uh, for these projects that I do. And she's just so cool and so, so kind of, she's un, she's unfazed by the projects because she always knows there's not a script. Okay, let's just make sure we've got enough people to document um, and so I sit with her and we and we edit the material and it sometimes it takes months, sometimes it just takes a few weeks. Um and I bring it I all I, I try and uh because I'm aware that in galleries, the moment you have video, you know that you have to commit a certain amount of time to it. So I try to bring things down to like Oh, as an audience, you mean. Yeah, as right. an audience, you're, you know, it's you're one's asking quite a lot. Yeah. An audience to, to come and sit, usually in a space that's not really kitted out for sitting and watching. Um 
so Exquisite Cacophony's longest film, which is 30 minutes, but most of my films are about 15, 10, 15 minutes. So I'm condensing lots of of the material, editing it down. And so this particular, um, We Move In Her Way, was seven, seven different videos of that. And it's all happening at the same time in ideas that people might move through the space um and then with the with the with the stills production images I then I go on this journey and I've been making wallpapers with them or making uh, just kind of playing with the images that come out of them as much as playing in terms of the edit and this title is we move in her way and the Venice show is uh feeling, feeling her way are you her N- no uh, uh, yes and no, yes and yes and no. Um, so with, it's probably clear that I am a feminist. <laughs> 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 Just putting it out there, a badge, badge wearing one. Um, so, uh, uh, and, you know, one of the things that very, it's, it's really interesting, the conversation we're having, because, you know, People often want to talk to me about, you know, my identity and or the question of identity. And I'm always referring to art history and who are the who are the key people that I kind of look at in art history. And most of the, my reference points are women artists um, in terms of that kind of historical, the historical trajectory that I see myself as being part of. Um, so the her way can be any of the hers that are kind of either historical or in the present or in the work or in the audience um uh that that it's it's my it's my nod to saying yeah this is i'm thinking very gendered ways here yeah um also for the future and for the future Mm. definitely yeah because even the title in itself is a sign for the future isn't it yeah you can read so much from that and for me the you know so with feeling her way, I was I was kind of agonising about the title of it, and kind of thought, well, actually, because I literally uh, there's a a question about spontaneity, about not really knowing where something's leading, just kind of a kind of trust that yeah, there's something here to just go with it, that it just seemed to be really not only not only for myself but what was happening with the performers and but also what I'm asking of a crew and what I'm asking of an audience is just that there isn't you know so people will say to me so what's the message that you're trying to and I kind of I I I really struggle with the idea of that the work in in stark contrast to the work of the 80s that I kind of moved away from having a kind of didactic message Mm. that the work is there to deliver that actually I'm the work is kind of evolving and hoping that an audience visitors to the work those who are part of the work will somehow trust wherever this might lead to mm. and so feeling her way was basically literally about like I don't know what's around the corner but I'm just going to keep going but also this. the ideas come out of the making you know and yeah. it's it's I think that's such a wonderful thing and also that openness means that more people can access it because hopefully. it's more universal hopefully it's probably hopefully would become something even even bigger for me it's like an invitation I feel like your work's kind of like a really generous invitation that sort of 
Oh, it's so generous. Yeah. yeah, it does all kinds of things, though. You know, it can make you feel emotions. It can educate. It can, it can make you feel part of something. It's a higher and, message. Your work. It's yeah. Like, United we stand, divided we fall. Oh yeah. You know, it I feels love that. like I love you know, that. and, and yeah. again, going back to the collaboration thing, it feels like if you and you see how performers find their way mm-hmm. and create something, and it's mm-hmm. about how if you someone you don't know and you connect with them and you go well what are we doing let's do it together actually yeah. that's going to be better yeah. for us isn't it yeah isn't the outcome going to be safer and i feel more protected <laughs> knowing you're there to do this with me yeah and so that's that's and it's message. also like belief in others and in their yeah. creative potential and in like you you creating a space where people can create you're going to document that because yeah. it means something and you sort of value others and that's what I love about it's a it. respect isn't I remember it? going in the studio when I used to make pop music and I, at the end of the day I'd be like god if we hadn't recorded today we would never in that song that wouldn't exist yeah. it wouldn't be tangible it wouldn't be there anymore it's actually making me sad now I feel like I need to start writing songs again or something but you should yeah it's like um it's it's funny though that I forgot how precious it is to actually just create that structure to allow people to put yourself in the moment where you can create that and you're facilitating these incredible moments but i'm also benefiting hugely from that because you know i other people allow me to go to places that i didn't know i might go to Mm. and i i i am kind of addicted to that that element of surprise as much as that people have found a way to work something out in a within within a small space of time within a particular context. Mm. You know, I get I get enormous amount from that, and it 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 it. I suppose it encourages me to not. What's the word? What's the word that I'm looking for? I'm always learning from it. Mm. I'm just always learning from the work that other people and people I know people are incredibly generous. When they when they feel mm. oh yeah I can do this here and so I can do this with you know, I can do this with you and then they really they give way more than they I think they realise they're giving. Where are those twins now? I wonder if they they're aware of their right. Get them back. That's <laughs> <laughs> bringing them back now. Like. Have the return of the twins. Yeah, the return of the twins. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I'm Facebook friends with one of them. Actually, oh, okay. um, yeah, I I that that was that was yeah that was a really that was a kind of watershed moment of. Of realizing, actually, I don't have to. I don't have to have that that kind of authorial voice. Mm-hmm. That actually, there's other ways to do things, and that yeah, it could just make me rethink. And to rethink, I think is is incredibly important. You know, not to just be stuck in one's own way of thinking about something. That mm-hmm. makes you a brilliant teacher. Well, I don't. Yeah, well, that you, that's other people. That's for other people to say. I'm not sure whether I would say that I am, but I love it. I do love the. Yeah. I do love that space. Yeah. So, what um, happens next? What is, what what happens to an artist when they win the Golden Lion at Venice? How, how does that <laughs> affect their career? And what sort of opportunities are suddenly in front of you? And are you batting people away? And I am having to bat people away a bit, um, and it's to do with how much time there is in a day. I haven't actually been back to this to make anything physical since the end of January, so I'm really chomping at the bit to just go back into the studio. Um, the, you know, the thing about you know the Venice Biennale is that it's an enormous platform with people who may never have known about Art World Olympics. It's the Art yeah. World Olympics, and so. Many more people are 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 interested in the work. 
I mean, me coming here and having this conversation, you know, it's a, it's a direct consequence, really, of of the kind of platform that it represents. Um, I so I'm I'm now sixty, so and I I kind of love and hate saying that at the same time, and what I really want now is this kind of level of sustainability right. to make to make the work. Mm. Um, and I've, you know, most of my career has been based on being very precarious of like trying to, you know, rub two pennies together to make, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, to make things kind of happen. And so I'm, my hope is that this just gives me a trajectory that I can think about the next five years rather than think about the next six months in terms of making work that I can actually build some of the projects that I I have some fan, quite fantastical things in my head about things that I would really like to make and you know the the, the space that is that one can make sounds in I think would be definitely one of them the other one I'm going to just put it out there mm-hmm. is um I want to build uh, a museum for the durational collection ah yes because currently it's stored in your the archive <laughs> is all in your studio or home studio and literally I drive the household crazy with all the bits but uh, but as an artwork I want to I want to build that as an artwork a museum for that collection well you've been quoted as saying you enjoy making noise I do I enjoy the noise of others as well fantastic well so our final questions we're going to get into now Um, the first one is if you could do an art heist you could have any artwork for yourself from anywhere in the world whatever it would be what would it be and why So I'm going to have to think really carefully about this mm. because I'm wondering whether it could be a building that's got artworks in it. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so that I get all of them. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you thought about this. Sorry, yeah. I'm just trying to think this yeah. one through. Um, <laughs> but then I would just call the, the, the building itself the artwork of which it contains many things. Mm. So... Um, I'm wondering whether to think about the UK. If it was the UK, then I would probably um, have the Whitworth in Manchester. Oh, nice. nice. Um, That's a very... The building's beautiful. Yeah. Their collection's beautiful. Um, If it was... Gosh. Sorry. Having now gone down this road of mm. thinking of I'm wondering whether I can have a collection of museums mm. rather yeah. than just one museum. You have whatever you want. You've won the golden line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I can go to my bank manager and say, well, you know, I've won the golden line now. So, um, yeah. Um, yes, what would... Yeah, I'll stay with the Whitworth because that's 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 containable. Because otherwise, I can yeah, I could yeah, I could see myself getting really extravagant. Um, yeah, Whitworth is a good one. It's a good one. Would you put the devotional collection in the Whitworth? Oh yeah. Across, would that be a dream? That would be amazing. If I ha- if I could have just that building yeah. to mm. play with and and to do yeah. Definitely. Didn't someone do that? I thought Marina Abramovich took over the Whitworth and just emptied the whole place. She got them to literally empty the whole place yeah. and then they did a performance and they had to put all the art in storage. Yeah. And she did that. So if they can do that for Marina, we can do it for you. 
Maybe that's what will be the result of this episode. <laughs> That'll be the tangible... If you can, if you can make that happen. Yeah, we'll be like, Whitworth, time to empty. The devotional collection's arriving. Knock, knock, knock. Well, the thing is, they have the most beautiful wallpaper collection. Oh, wow. Oh, of, and one. particularly of artists who've made yeah, wallpapers. Yeah, yeah. So they've got, you know, they've got a, yeah. Hopefully someone's listening. Um, the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Oh God, I'm going to be greedy again. I actually have combination of colours rather than single colours. So Which I, makes sense because of the collaborative nature of yeah, your practice. Of <laughs> so um, I like, I like um, blue or kind of topaz and brown, tan colours oh, together. I like um, pink and orange together. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like the combination of colours together, what they do to each other. Vibrations. Yeah. 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 What is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art? Um, The best advice I received, again, comes from Karen Forwalker. So Karen Forwalker, she was kind of feminist curator, very New York, and then moved to London. And when we first, when I first got to know her, she, she was saying the biggest issue for women artists is accepting success and I thought wow that's amazing and how do you feel now I get what she's saying so you find you find it oh finding it kind of well how to how to do this without it skewing my brain of course you know and actually how to do this and uh not only, it's not just about enjoying it, but it's also like I, I don't I don't want to go in the studio and have anxiety because of what I've done. Mm. Can I ever do that again in that way? Can it receive that kind of a, you know there's mm. all of the doubts? Of course, after doing a, any show, to be honest, the doubts kind of creep in. So how to do this and not be you know high one moment? Oh my god, I've won this, and then am I really able to do this again? That kind of, that vacillating between, um, while at the same time, I kind of know what I'm doing, but how to stay level and not be vacillating between the kind of high and the low Mm -hmm. is is my challenge at the moment. I think you are incredibly generous because you share it. We had uh, Skinder Hundal in Mm -hmm. earlier, who you know with, uh, who you know very well, he's uh, director of the British Council, and he said a beautiful story about how you handed your trophy to Claudette Johnson yeah. at one point yeah. and gave it away. I wanted her to have, to hold it and say, this is, you know, you should have this. The same with Zineb, you know. And what I didn't say is that I used to live next, I, one, I taught Zineb, but I used to live next door to Zineb and then Zineb is next door in the in the French pavilion. At the Biennale. At yeah. the Biennale. And yeah. that, you know, I, I suppose there's this sense that you know, the idea that somehow one makes it on one's own, I just, to me, that just seems a really false, false idea. I don't think that that's how things happen. I don't think anybody creates themselves. We're created by the communities in which we, you know, that, that open the door, that say, oh, go, go that way or think about that or, or do you want to come along and be part of this or, you know. So for me... It 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 is important that um, 
and so many people have been involved in making this possible that it would it just wouldn't sit with me you know and Claudia is very 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 important to me and yeah. her work is amazing yeah agreed well, your work is amazing. This has been amazing. It, it's just, just been... It's been one of my favourite interviews I've ever done. Yeah. Oh, a proper it. collaboration. I feel, I actually feel really moved by it. Yeah. I don't know. It's been really brilliant. Thank oh, you so that's so and, kind. Um, thank you for your art as well, because I, honestly, I love it so much. Oh, that's so and, kind. And um, for everyone listening, you've got until November to November find a way... November 27th. November 27th to find a way to get to Venice. Um, and hopefully there's an affordable way to get there, maybe, um, for everybody. So um, we are definitely going to go. I've not had the chance to go yet, but I'm 100% going. Because um, I, I watched the film of your um, installation. I just want to be in there. Yeah. I want to I want to see the gold, like, sculptural furniture mm. kind of element and all the different elements. I can't wait to be there. But most of all, the sound. I just think it, it sounds extraordinary, mm. doesn't it? Um, yeah. So are you on Instagram? No. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> You're on Facebook, we know that. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> I'm on Facebook. Oh dear, should I have said that? Um, um, I think my daughter has set up a... So, oh, yeah. sorry. Sonia Boyce, you've got two, a few thousand followers, but it looks like you don't post. So there is there is, there is, is another Sonia Boyce out there who's been... Res- people have been posting stuff about me for years to this person called Sonia Boyce. And so my daughter has now set up a Sonia Boyce artist uh, Instagram. Oh, here we are, yeah, at Sonia Boyce artist. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I've never looked at it because, as I say, I'm very 20th century mm. and my kids tell me, oh, you're too old for those things. Um, so... Um, Facebook is for old people, as we all know. Well, you can so. also find out about Sonia's work through Simon Lee Gallery, at Simon Lee Gallery on Instagram. And uh, obviously go to the British Council's website. But if you Google Sonia Boyce, you will be um, discovering lots of great art. Yeah, check there. the video link. In this, um, yeah. Oh, we, we didn't talk about audition because I love that. That work's so powerful. But there's loads of works. Just dig in deep, everybody. And um, yeah, uh, we'll be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Oh, that Thanks was great. Here. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com